Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So as I'm recording this, we are heading into one of the busiest weeks of the year for international diplomacy, and frankly, for me personally. That is the opening of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, in which hundreds of world leaders gather at the United Nations for the big annual show. In the next episode, which I'll probably publish Sunday night, I'll go into some of the high politics and drama and storylines that will drive the agenda during UN Week. But behind this politics and behind this drama are issues of real substance, and arguably the most important substantive issue on the table this week relate to the global refugee crisis. There will be two high-level meetings at the United Nations around refugees and migrants. The first is organized by the United Nations itself and is the so-called, quote, Summit for Refugees and Migrants. The second is being organized by President Obama and is the, quote, Leaders Summit on Refugees. Taken together, these high-level meetings at the UN have the potential to be an important inflection point in the international community's attempt to address the largest global displacement crisis since World War II. On the line to help me put these two summits into broader context of how the world confronts a growing refugee crisis and an ever-increasing number of migrants around the world is Shannon Scribner, a humanitarian policy advisor for Oxfam. Shannon describes what these two distinct summits hope to accomplish, some of their benefits and weak points, and she also does an excellent job of explaining the complex challenge of crafting a global strategy to confront this global problem. This is one of the most important issues of our era, and Shannon does an excellent job of, frankly, putting it all in context. But a couple of quick announcements before we start. The first is that there is a chance that I will host a live taping of Global Dispatches during UN Week in New York City, in which I interview a very high-ranking State Department official. Now, the uh, details are still in flux, and frankly, it's not entirely clear if this is going to happen. It's all kind of coming together at the last minute. But if it does happen, I want you to be the first to know. And I figure the best way to do that is if you sign up for the email list for Global Dispatches. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and enter your email into the email list field. And if this thing comes together, I will email you uh, with the dates. And I should say that I really look forward to doing this. And even if it doesn't happen, I would love to try to put together another live taping some point in the near future, probably in New York or DC or frankly, anywhere that you might invite me uh, to to do this. So let me know if, if that's something that you think you might be interested in attending. The second announcement, and I think you know where I'm going with this, is that we are still in the middle of our fundraising drive. It is September. September is the biggest month, as I said, for me personally. I want to keep delivering to you this podcast at the pace in which I'm delivering it to you. But the only, literally the only way I can do that is if you make a contribution to the podcast. And I'm asking for recurring monthly contributions so I can plan financially and plan the resources that I need to devote, that I'm able to devote to this podcast. So please 
make a contribution to the podcast. You can do it right now if you're listening to this on your iPhone by clicking on the link in the description page of the podcast episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the support the show link. I cannot do this without you. And I so, so, so appreciate your support. And now here is Shannon Scribner of Oxfam. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The, the reason that we're even here today in terms of talking about um, both refugees and, and um, migrants is because right now there are 65 million people around the world that have had to leave their home due to violence, persecution, and war. So these people are refugees, but they're also migrants. They're asylum seekers. And some of them have actually been internally displaced within their own country. So you, and sometimes you can be a migrant and then you can also become a refugee or vice versa. You're a refugee who becomes a migrant. So there's a lot of crossover between a refugee, a migrant, um, or even an internally displaced person. So both the Secretary General and President Obama decided that um, they wanted to come together at the UN General Assembly and, and host two summits, but they're, they're separate summits. And as you were pointing out, the first one, the Secretary General Summit, is focused on refugees and migrants. Um, but President Obama's summit is focused specifically on on refugees. You know, so so there's there's been a lot of talk that this is we have the the world's largest refugee crisis since World War II it's ongoing happening mm-hmm. right now. I mean, where did it all all start? I mean, is it really just because of the numbers of Syrian uh, refugees are are so high that they're pushing like the global average up? Where else around the world uh, are the refugees and and migrants coming from? So they're coming from all over the world. Um, Syria seems to be the place where the crisis has really caught attention. But if we look at the Horn of Africa, for example, um, well, first of all, the average life that someone spends in a refuge camp is 17 years. So if we look at Sudan, if we look at Kenya that host the largest refugee camps in the world, they're called Dadaab. People have come from Somalia, from Eritrea. They've come from Ethiopia. Um, We have refugees living in Tanzania. Um, So we have a lot of African uh, displacement, but also African refugees living all over the world. And this has been going on, you know, for decades. The Syria crisis seemed to be the tipping point, though. So we had millions of refugees living for a very long time, either internally inside of a country, or they crossed the border into another country for decades. But with Syria, what happened was we have over you know 4.5 million refugees just from the Syria crisis, and most of those refugees have gone into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, um, even Iraq. Um, but when they started crossing the Mediterranean, getting on boats and risking their lives and reaching Europe, that's when it seemed like the the world finally paid attention to this refugee crisis that had been 
ongoing for decades. And that's when we saw images of people risking their lives to make it to Europe. And that seemed to also be the, the time when President Obama and the Secretary General said, well, we need to do something about this, which is a tragedy because it had been going on for decades. Uh, and so in what ways uh, has the sort of international system in which the UN and other agencies and, and countries around the world uh, have agreed since World War II to deal with refugees. Uh, in what ways has that system sort of held up in the face of, of these this sort of large number of refugees around the world? And what ways has it sort of crippled and, and failed? So there is so much normative law that already exists today. Um, so those laws, I mean, are everything from the you know 1951 Refugee Convention and the protocols that followed it. We have um, we have conventions on migration. We have international humanitarian law, human rights law. There are so many conventions and protocols that cover what to do when people flee their country, what to do when they become internally displaced or cross a border into another country and become a refugee or someone seeking, seeking asylum. And give so, an example of one of those. One of the, um, so one of the, so for example, we have the comprehensive, um, well, we have this 1951 refugee convention and the refugee convention is really about someone who, when they leave their borders, they have a right to seek asylum. They have a right to, um, to look at if they've been persecuted or if they've been tortured or the reason they're leaving that country. And so countries have signed on to these um, conventions um, agreeing to protect people seeking asylum or to protect people who have become refugees. So the summits are not about making new international humanitarian law or new conventions, but they are about confirming or reaffirming what's already in these conventions that are not being upheld today and in many cases. So so the laws on the books are generally pretty good, but it seems that in the face of this you know, surge in the number of, of refugees around the world, that countries are not living up to the laws and the treaties which they themselves had signed on to? Yes. And so two things. So one area where, you know, these conventions, we have a guiding principles for people who have become internally displaced. And but the refugee convention itself does not cover internally displaced people. So that is one area um, where there is concern because the majority of the 65 million people are actually internally displaced people. Like people this, who just fled to other parts of their country. Exactly. So they haven't crossed a border. Um, and they're still inside their country, but they have left. They've had to flee their homes because of one reason or another. And the summits won't actually deal and address um, the situation for displaced people. And, and that is um, a concern for us. The other thing that's happening kind of to your point about not living up to their commitments is that, you know, we've seen this happen over the years, but especially lately, where, for example, you know, international border management cooperation, you know, um, states have the authority to control their own borders. Um, so that is, is we're not at dispute with that. But um, in these different conventions and protocols, there is supposed to be um, border security, but also looks at allowing people in or finding a place for these people who are seeking 
asylum or who are fleeing conflict. And so if, if you're living in Sudan or if you're living in Eritrea and you need to flee those countries and you want to go to Europe to do that because you are fleeing persecution, you should be able to hear, they should be able, you should, they should be able to flee and be protected under these conventions. But what's happening is, for example, the European Union is considering working with the Sudanese and Eritrean governments to actually um, curb migration. So they want to look at funding detention centers and also other equipment to curb migration. So they're not looking at, okay, what do we do to protect people when they come into our own countries? What do we do to reveal, to review their asylum cases? They're actually looking at what do we, what do we do to stop people from even migrating to Europe in the first place? Because a large majority of refugees that are fleeing to Europe are not actually from Syria, but they're from Africa Sudan and Eritrea and other countries in Sudan or in, in Africa. So that's just one example. Um, another is that, you know, refugees, it, there should be a condition that refugees should never have to go home if there is a political solution, if there hasn't been a political solution in the country that they have fled or that if there's still ongoing conflict. Mm -hmm. This is but, like the, the principle of non-refoulement, right? The idea that you can't send a refugee back home if it risks putting them back into jeopardy. Exactly. But what we are seeing is countries like Kenya who are saying with the Dadaab refugee camps in Kenya – where uh, Somalis have fled because of the conflict in Somalia, but also, you know, we had the famine in 2011 in, in Somalia, and they fled for mostly for, for reasons because of conflict in their country that continues today in parts of the country. Kenya has said, we're going to close these camps and we're going to send Somalis back home, even though there is an argument to make that there has not, the conflict is not resolved, that you're sending people back home to a situation where they can be put um, in harm's way. So, so those I, are just a couple examples. Well, I guess it seems to me then that the idealistic principles uh, that countries signed on to in the wake of World War II, in the 1951 Refugee Convention and subsequent uh, conventions and, and protocols that really when push comes to shove, when they're faced with a, a mass number of, of refugees that they uh, don't want to handle or don't feel that they can handle, then uh, they kind of pick and choose the parts of these conventions that they will abide by. Yes. And that's why I think we have so far been disappointed with what we're seeing come out of plans for the UN summit in particular. I think we're much more hopeful. Oxfam is much more hopeful with the Obama summit, but not so much the UN summit, because what seems to have happened is that, you know, they've done this document that reaffirms international human rights, refugee laws, and some of the things that we've talked about. Um, the, the document also condemns, you know, racism, xenophobia and intolerance around the world today. And it also calls for a more equitable sharing of the burden of responsibility for hosting and supporting world refugees. But then what it does is it seems to um, evade these commitments. So every promise in this document has a caveat like where appropriate or every plan says something to the effect of we will consider so there is a real concern that we have these instruments that people, that countries that sign up to them are supposed to abide by, but it's um, an ad hoc um, kind of basis of when they uphold them and when they don't. And mm -hmm. the commitments going into the summit don't seem to reaffirm 
while they reaffirm the the commitments, they don't seem they seem very wishy washy, and they seem like it's it's going to go back to the status quo. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, and it's probably worth pointing out that like the summit outcome document uh, is really a reflection of. Uh, what governments themselves want included in it, right? And so it seems that unless they have some sort of change of, of attitude, that their caveats and their conditions will be reflected in this this outcome document. So a government like Hungary, which has not necessarily lived up to the letter of the law of the, of the refugee convention by um, harassing refugees within its border or not letting refugees cross through its border, uh, will want to insert those kind of caveats into a document so it can sign and say, right, that it's living up to this UN declaration. But in fact, that UN declaration is really a reflection of um, what the, the status quo is. Yes. And so that's absolutely right. You know, there was an original document in April that the Secretary General put out called In Safety and Dignity. And it was supposed to address the large movement of refugees and migrants. And that was supposed to be the basis for this outcome document that's called the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migration. And but what has happened is that now we've seen all these caveats come out of the outcome document, just as you said. And for example, one of the commitments in the safety and dignity document that um, the Secretary General's report underscored was that there should be a commitment to never detain children. Like this is something that we should not be doing. We have these conventions and these protocols that say we shouldn't do it. But as one of the caveats, the U.S. government, you know, insisted on including reference to the ability to be able to detain migrant children. Um, and that's because of what's happening along the southern border of the United States. So there's another example mm-hmm of where there is this caveat in the outcome document. So if if not this um, New York UN summit, this uh, then what else can be done? Or is there really like an international solution to this international problem? It doesn't seem like, you know, the global refugee crisis is something that can be dealt with in an ad hoc basis uh, for different regions around the world that they're because of, the facility with which people can move around the world these days, that there really does need to be this global compact. Um, so what what prospects are there for um, a, a better way forward? So there is the other summit that uh, it's a President Obama's leadership summit that we, Oxfam is much more hopeful will actually produce some results. And the reason is because this summit is more of a, you know, you pay to play for this summit. Mm -hmm. So this summit is being co-hosted. So it's hosted by the U.S. government. It's on the margins of the U.N. General Assembly meeting. It's being co-hosted with Canada, Ethiopia, Germany, Jordan, Mexico, Sweden, and the U.N. Secretary General as well. Um, And it's kind of, there's three objectives in this one. The first one is increasing funding to humanitarian appeals and also international organizations. And this has to do with, the humanitarian system is being over, you know, overfunded or underfunded, overwhelmed. Only one third of the appeals are met, um, and so this target is for a thirty mm-hmm. percent increase. And, and and it's worth pointing out that the way these appeals work is when there is a disaster in the world, when an earthquake strikes, or when a man-made disaster unfolds. A country like you know the Central African Republic that suddenly descends into civil war. Um, that humanitarian agencies in the United Nations just ask for money to provide for the basic humanitarian relief that's required to kind of keep people alive and and um, help them see them through this crisis. And and you're saying that in general there are um, most of these appeals are are vastly underfunded. Yes, about one third of the appeals are funded in a, in a given year. These emergency appeals. 
Um, and then the second point is to admit more refugees, either through resettlement or other legal pathways. Um, and so right now in the United States, this fiscal year, President Obama has resettled, for example, 10,000 Syrian refugees. Um, the global ceiling is usually is 100,000 for this fiscal year. But so the global what, ceiling of the number of refugees from around the world that the U.S. will resettle is 100,000. Yes. Thank you. Um, and so this is looking at admitting more refugees globally, asking everyone who attends this particular leadership summit to look at resettling or other legal pathways, which could be reunification of family. It could be a student visa. Um, there's other ways that people can, or humanitarian, um, you know, they can get a visa for a humanitarian admission as well and, and things along those lines. Can, can I ask one thing that politically has um, um, uh, confused me or, or, or caused me a, a bit uh, of like eyebrow raising is how, Okay, on the one hand, yes, the U.S. is the largest global resettler of refugees around the world, that it will take in 100,000 refugees from around the world uh, to its borders. But yet uh, the most urgent refugee crisis uh, in terms of, of numbers is the Syrian refugee crisis, and they're only taking in 10,000, where you have a country like Jordan that has like 2 million refugees. Uh, how can they credibly look other countries in the eye and tell them to do more when they are only taking in 10,000 Syrian refugees? Yes. Um, I mean, if you look at Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan, and then Lebanon, even South Africa and the occupied Palestinian territories, um, they take in, you know, 50% of the world's refugees. And then if you look at the wealthiest countries like U.S., China, Japan, Germany, France, and the U.K., um, they take less than 9%. So this is the shared responsibility. Um, for the U.S. government and the Syrian crisis in particular, um, they are dealing with xenophobia. They're dealing with kind of these racist comments about um, refugees, especially from Syria. So that is why those numbers are, are lower. Um, it's also proximity to, you know, where do refugees go into certain countries? And it's much more difficult for Syrian refugees to come to the United States. It actually takes about two years to be resettled in the U.S., but Oxfam is calling for the, the nose numbers to be much higher. Um, and we would actually like that ceiling, the U.S. government ceiling, to go from 100,000 to 200,000 next fiscal year. So we're kind of aiming high at where the U.S. could go and also to resettle um, many more Syrians. But it is a question of, you know, standing up at the summit and calling for redoubling the numbers that countries resettle. And then the U.S. having this problem with not only the Syrian um, refugees that we resettle or find other pathways to bring into this country, but what's happening along our southern borders as well as we detain children um, that are coming over to this country from Central America. So, so yes, they're they're going to have to stand up and be credible as they're asking other countries to commit to these three objectives. Uh, yet, yet you you do say that you are hopeful though that that these kind of calls for increasing the numbers of um, refugees to be resettled in wealthier countries uh, will have some sort of um, will 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 be um, have some sort of tangible impact. I'm, we are hopeful that this the President Obama summit in particular, just because they're going to be firm commitments. Where the UN summit is mostly reaffirming with all these caveats. Yeah. So that this one looks better. That's the third part of that summit of the Obama summit is to increase refugee self reliance um, and inclusion through opportunities of education and legal work. And this is really important because one thing 
that the you know 1951 Refugee Convention does not do is does not say people have the right to work um, if you become a refugee. And as we've already talked about, you know, the average life in a refugee camp can be 17 years nowadays. So what do we do with children who are growing up um, in these refugee camps, often with no access to education? Are people who cannot legally work um, and could actually be contributing to society, could be, and also their own self-reliance. So the third point is to increase the number of refugees worldwide that are, have access to education and, and to jobs by a million. So a million more kids in school and a million more refugees that have the legal right to work in these countries. And that's, so this one looks more, more hopeful in terms of if you have to come to the summit prepared to make these commitments, then it, the outcomes will, should be much stronger. But overall, the, both the, the UN summit in particular is going to be a two-year process where two years from now, so in 2018, they're supposed to have this um, global compact on refugees and an agreement on a global compact for, for um, migration as well. So two separate compacts are supposed to be put forward and adopted by the UN General Assembly two years from now. So are groups like Oxfam and other sort of refugee advocates hopeful at all that this eventual global compact may be sort of more robust, that perhaps political conditions may change uh, over the next two years when this um, compact is supposed to be finally decided, uh, that there's sort of room for improvement based on what you're describing as a lackluster New York declaration that's coming out this week? We're hopeful. We were very disappointed by the outcome document. There were consultations in July in New York, Oxfam. It was civil society organizations attended. Oxfam had a delegation that was there, and we were just very disappointed with, with the outcome document overall. Um, we don't think it, it outlines a shared responsibility that we've been talking about at all. The fact that it doesn't address IDPs at all or internally displaced people and that it's evaded these commitments is very, you know, disconcerting. We'll continue to work on this, though, for the next two years and hopes that, you know, two years from now that we have something that's strong, that has firm commitments. Um, but we're, we're very disappointed with the outcome document so far. So can I ask, like, why is this important? Like, why does there need to be this kind of UN global compact on, on refugees and, and migrants? Like, what's like, why do we even need this in the first place? So, you know, we've talked about, we haven't seen these numbers since World War II in, in terms of the number of people who have been displaced and, and living as refugees. And, and really the projection is that it's going to get much worse and not better. I mean, I remember having a conversation, um, you know, just within the U.S. government, with congressional offices and even the State Department about the refugee crisis um, in Syria. And this was three years ago. And we had about 2 million refugees at that point that were coming out of that, that area. And our, our talking point was it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. You know, there needs to be, we need to address the, the conflict, but this is not going in a good direction. And, and globally, that is the case as well, is that it's not expected that these numbers will decrease, but they're actually going to increase and that migration is be, is actually going to increase and people seeking asylum is going to increase because of the number of protracted conflicts we have around the world. So that's why it's crucial to actually understand and commit to how the international community is going to deal with this with national governments because 
the problem is going to just increasingly get worse. And, and what happens if, if nothing is done? If, if we keep kind of um, going a- along the same way that we're currently going with maybe a few marginal fixes, but overall the trajectory is that there will be no dramatic change by the international community to confront this crisis. I think that then we look at these, unfortunately, what will happen is that these normative laws that we've been putting in place, you know, since, well, 1951 with the Refugee Convention, the 1967 Protocol on Refugees, and some of these other instruments won't mean anything. And we're starting to see this a little bit with international humanitarian law in terms of protection of health facilities and civilian infrastructure. Um, If you look at, you know, MSF hospitals in Yemen and and Afghanistan that have been hit time and again, you know, there is concern that international humanitarian law, which governs, you know, how laws are are fought and and access and independent access um, for for people, for NGOs and for aid workers is closing. And um, so that would be my concern is that all of these conventions and protocols that we have in place don't mean anything. So you're saying that like the, when, when these rules start getting chipped away, like when the prohibition against bombing a hospital um, becomes, you know, gets chipped away, whether by the U.S. government bombing an MSF hospital in Afghanistan or the Saudi uh, government bombing hospitals in, in Yemen, that um, overall the protection of these medical facilities keeps getting weaker and, and weaker. And likewise, uh, if you start violating the rights that were afforded to refugees back in 1951 and the convention, if you start chipping away at that, then more and more of those conventions will be chipped away at and will sort of what be left with like an anarchy situation. I don't know about anarchy, but certainly um, continued ad hoc responses and caveats for when these conventions and protocols are upheld and when they're not. And if that starts, and that's already started to happen. So if we don't reverse that, um, I hope it's not anarchy, but um, the end result will be more people dying as they're trying to flee their countries, um, find safe refuge, and not getting that assistance that they were entitled to under these laws. Uh, Well, Shannon, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening and glad to take a deep dive into an issue of substance that will be top of the agenda next week. And frankly, as often happens during UN week, the issues of substance are sometimes overshadowed by um, issues of politics. But uh, nonetheless, I'm, I'm glad to learn more uh, about this and to learn kind of behind the scenes uh, what the international community is trying to do to uh, address this terrible, terrible crisis. Uh, and again, first, thank you to those of you who have made a contribution to Global Dispatches. Um, I I so, so appreciate it. And there, there are several of you already who have, and I just thank you from the, the deepest depths of my heart uh, for your contribution. If you've not already, and if you're considering, please do. Please know that um, my ability to continue doing this podcast depends on uh, your willingness to contribute to it. Uh, I don't think this is content you can really get anywhere else. Um, I love making this podcast week in, week out, but there are other things I could be doing that might frankly, be a little more financially beneficial to me. Uh, I don't want to have to do those. Uh, I want to 
be able to to bring you this podcast week in, week out. But in order to do that, I, I need your help. So please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to make a contribution. Or if you're listening to this on uh, your iPhone using the podcast app, click on the, the link in the description page of this episode. All right. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. Bye.